As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word and I pray that you would enable us to attend to it. We realize that your word to us, as your sacraments are to us, a means of grace. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us uh, listen. And by your spirit that you would work in us this word that would work grace in us to increase our faith, increase our understanding of you, and also enable us to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. So this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Titus in chapter 1, please. New Testament letter towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, Titus chapter 1, please. I want to read verses uh, 1 through 4, though I think I'll only make it through verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. I was, must admit, I was a bit jealous of my friend Kelly Liebengood a couple of weeks ago when he was, in, he was able to get you to respond to the reading of the word. So I'm going to keep it simple. If I say, this is the word of the Lord, could you say, thanks be to God? All right? Does that sound like being too... High church snooty. All right. Okay. We're good. We're good with that. Okay. Okay. The word of the Lord. Whew, there you go. Of the call Kelly. Um, I want, if God will help me, to take up this little book of Titus, this little New Testament letter, uh, at least between now and Advent. Yes, Advent is only six weeks away. Uh, but uh, so we may still be there, but I, I don't know what I'm going to do. When Advent comes, but um, especially if I only get through one verse today. But, uh, but I want to take this. I have no particular agenda. You know how I do this. I have no particular agenda. Just in my own reading and so forth. Uh, this caught my attention. Titus. And so, so here we are. I'm safe because it's in the Bible. So that will help us. And you know that when we gather on Sundays, what we really want to do is simply listen to a text. We want to simply listen to what God is laying out, not try to formulate ahead of time what what we should be thinking about or what I should say. I just try to take a text and go to it and hear. Uh, so those of you who pray for me, you know what you're to pray for. You pray that I listen well and that we listen well uh, together. So we just simply want to take this up. What we find in these first four verses is Paul's introduction of himself to Titus. And what makes this really odd is that this is one of the longest introductions that Paul has in his, in fact, for Bible nerds, for people who count words and things, um, this introduction is twice as long as the average Pauline introduction to 
to a letter. And it's a short letter. You would expect like Romans is the longest introduction. We'd well, expect that. It's, it's a long, long letter, long book in the, in the Bible. But this is just a short one. And what also makes it odd is that Paul and Timothy were intimate companions, intimate colleagues. They knew each other really well. They shared ministry life together and had been doing that for a long time. And even Paul notes of Timothy in verse 4, he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. You would think he wouldn't need much of an introduction at all to Titus because they knew each other so well. You would think that, I must confess, that when we get Christmas cards, I often just look at the return address. Do you do that? You probably don't. But I look at the return address and I see who it's from and I go, oh, it's so nice that they sent us a card. And I feel really good about that. I don't need too much more information about that because I just go, that was nice, you know. (sighs) We won't be getting as many cards. Karen reads them. She puts them on the wall. She tells me about them. She says, you got to read this. And then I do. But, but there's a sense, I know you and I, I, I know your love for us. And I, it's just great. To, and that's all I need. Return address. I know some of you buy your just addresses. Uh, I go, oh, I knew who that is. I know where they live. But, um, but you'd think that that would have all, all Titus needed was a return address, right? Just that's it. Oh, it's from Paul. Cool. Let's go. But it, but he doesn't. We wonder why. I mean, I mean, Titus. You might remember these things. But 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 Titus was one of Paul's first first companions when 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 Paul made a trip um, to Jerusalem to talk to the other disciples there, the key ones, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. He he went there to talk about about the old covenant and the new covenant and the signs of the old covenant, the new covenant from circumcision to perhaps baptism. And, and, and there was a, a movement in the early church that said that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, Gentiles who came to faith, maybe they needed to go back through all the rites of, of the old covenant with Moses and circumcision. Paul said, no, they don't. And so Timothy was kind of his, his prototype. I mean, he brought, I mean, Titus was his prototype. He brings them to, to the, these uh, apostles and, and and he says he's a believer he doesn't need to be circumcised he, he just needs to be baptized he's he's a believer in jesus and they agreed so so from then they were they were um, ministry buddies together companions and when we were working our way through second corinthians earlier this year uh we found that it was titus that paul entrusted with what he called his severe letter to the church in corinth uh, and it was it was a letter of, of discipline in the church, and Paul was anxious about how they would receive it, and anxious about how they would receive his friend Titus. And so, so, so Paul, you might remember, left where he was and went to Troas, and and didn't find Titus, and was all nervous about that. And so then he went to Macedonia, and when he when Titus showed up, he was just relieved. You could even feel the comfort that Paul felt as you're reading in in Second Corinthians, and. And he found him and they treated Titus well. So Paul was happy about that and they received the letter well. And Paul was happy about that. And then later he sent Titus back to Corinth to take up an offering uh, to, to encourage them to complete what they had promised uh, in the offering that, that, uh, that they had promised for the poor in Jerusalem. And so he sent Titus back uh, to get that um, we'll, we'll, we'll read here at the end of, of Titus that 
He's going to relieve Titus of his post. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me uh, at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. So he, he, he wants Titus to come and, and be with him. This is later in Paul's life. So so we, why the long uh, introduction? Well, I don't know. Uh, it, it just is long. It could be for this last expression in verse 15, grace of chapter 3, grace be with you all. That's a plural. And so Titus was on an island, Crete, in the Mediterranean, and there were churches spread out, Christians spread out on the island. And so no doubt more than just Titus was going to read this. And so perhaps Paul just said, hey, I need to give you a little a little more about me. So when they hear this letter read and the end of the reading, someone would say, this is the word of the Lord. And the people would say, thanks be to God. Um, and uh, it's in there somewhere. But the uh, uh, but but they need to know more about me. Plus, it seems, as Paul often does, he embeds in these introductions, in these greetings, what's really on his heart for the people who are going to hear this letter and what's really on his heart it seems is that they need to know that their faith and their knowledge of the truth leads to godliness is consistent with godliness it isn't just that they know more but it should transform it should affect the way that they live now, we don't even know how these you all got there in terms of coming to faith. As you read through the book of Acts, very often we find uh, the places where Paul has planted churches. And so we read the New Testament letters. Like if you read the letter to Ephesians, you go back to Acts and you read about how the church in Ephesus began. Or the church in Corinth, we read the letters to the Corinthians and we go back and, and, and we read about how the church in Corinth was established. Or the church in Philippi and, and so forth. And the Galatian churches. But, but, but there's nothing really about a church in Crete a really beginning. In fact, it, it looks as if it's kind of in its embryonic stage even then because... There hadn't been elders appointed. We'll get to that later. There hadn't been elders appointed to organize the church yet. And Paul always did that when he, when he planted a church, when there were enough believers. He, the scripture tells us that he appointed elders in those places, but that hadn't happened here yet. Titus was still charged to do that. So, so we don't know how they began. Uh, we do know, interestingly enough, that in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, you might remember that was the day... Jesus had ascended and he sent his spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish holiday, there were Jewish men from all over the known world, anywhere where there were Israelites. Uh, the men would return for Pentecost, that feast. And we do know that there were men from Crete, according to Acts chapter 2, uh, there on that day who had come to faith. And so you just wonder, you know, that was one of the ways that the this great commission of Jesus would be fulfilled when he said you're going to go into all the world and spread the gospel. Well, on that day of Pentecost, interestingly enough, there were people from all the known world. And if they went back home, perhaps those Cretans, I don't like to say that. It doesn't sound very complimentary uh, somehow. Uh, sounds like you're saying something bad about it. But people from Crete, men from Crete, um, 
were very solid in their faith. They were <laughs> concrete. But that uh, was really bad. But but there they were. They went back and they maybe they maybe they spread. We we, we don't know. Another occasion, Acts twenty seven. Paul was um, was actually a prisoner, and they were moving him to Rome, and he had to. To, to go through Crete to get there, the island had to go through Crete to get there, and and it was. But, but that passage is all about Paul warning about a shipwreck that actually did happen, and so forth and so on. So we don't get any impression that he did any evangelizing at that point. It could be this is sort of the the um, uh, a conventional wisdom. It could be that after Paul was released from this house arrest in Rome that we read about at the end of Acts in Acts chapter twenty eight. That he went out again. That seems to be true. That he went out again and, 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 uh, and, and perhaps with Titus to, to Crete. And, uh, there they either found believers or brought the gospel. So there were believers there. And, uh, Paul left Titus and said, stay here and finish up. Finish up what we've started. Uh, and so he moves on to do that. But however it is, we realize that Paul really wants them to know and wants Titus to bring to them this connection between faith, their knowledge of the truth, and godliness. Because that's what was missing there. Notice chapter 1 verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You see, their faith and their knowledge of the truth is to lead to godliness. We don't learn things about God simply so we know more things about God. The purpose of knowing the truth is to be godly, to reflect the heart, the character of God. But notice how Paul introduces himself. This is instructive for us as well. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God. Now, the question I ask of myself as I read that is, is that how I understand myself? In that sense, a servant of God. Paul knew himself to be a servant of God. Interesting expression. Almost always, Paul refers to himself as a servant of Jesus, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Infrequently, he calls himself a servant of God. And and, and you wonder again, why did he use that one here? Well, perhaps this, that that was the, 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 the way that Moses and the prophets of old described themselves as servants of the Lord, servants of God. And you get the sense throughout this whole letter, and just kind of put your antenna up, that Paul's connecting Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. He's saying, this didn't just start with me. In fact, it didn't even just start with Jesus. It started all the way back in the Old Covenant. And I'm simply following along in the tradition of Moses and the tradition of the prophets. I'm a servant of God. And and we know that little expression, servant, can be translated bond slave. A slave of God. Paul would know that to be true about himself. He would, he knew his own language was that I, we have been bought with a price. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased. 
We've been purchased, interestingly enough, from one form of slavery, the slavery to sin, which leads to death, the slavery to the penalty of sin and its power. We're enslaved, the scripture says, to that, that that it, it holds us in bondage. And so as sinners, those who rebel against God, as sinners, we're under the, the, the bondage of the penalty of that sin, which is eternal death. And not only that, we're under the bondage of its power that leads us, incites us to sin, to turn against God in all kinds of ways. And we know that. I have to list that for you. We know that deep within and maybe even not as deep. We just simply know that. And he says, okay, you've been bought with a price. You've been freed from sin's penalty. Good news. But you've also been freed from its power, its dominion over you. Good news. But you've been freed from that, not to be autonomous, not to determine your own life, not to go your own way, because we were never meant to be free from God. We were meant to be free from sin, but not meant to be free from God. He made us. We're not autonomous. We're creatures. He's the creator. Life is in him. Uh, you remember when Kelly David a couple of weeks ago was talking about Jesus' prayer. And he said Jesus prayed that we would be with him where he is. Jesus is. And Jesus was always in the Father. And in this wonderful fellowship of the Trinity. This fellowship that is love and is always love. That's why Kelly, during that men's retreat, emphasized for us and on that Sunday morning that one of the great implications of God as three in one, God as Trinity, is that it means he's always loved. He's love eternal. He isn't just one. If he's just one person, then he had to make us to love. He had to find some others to love. But All through eternity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lived in love. That's why it can be said, God is eternally loved. And so Paul says, we're not to be independent of that. We're not to be autonomous from that. We're to be in that. And so he's freed us from this one slavery. And now he says, and I think he means it, but it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Now I'm a slave of God. You know, and that sounds bad. But it's not. It's exactly who we were meant to be. And so he says, now you see, we're to live not as slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6. Don't offer the members of your body as instruments of sin or slaves to sin. or, or But rather, uh, offer them as a slave of righteousness. Uh, to live righteously. And so, so Paul says, I'm a servant of God. I've been bought with a price. I no longer think I ought to define myself. But as a slave of God, I look to God to answer the question, who am I? I have no will of my own, but only his. I, I, I look to God to answer the question, how should I live? I have no will of my own, but only his, you see. And so that's where I find life as a slave of God not 
as a slave of myself, not as a slave of others, not as a slave of sin, but as a servant, a slave of God. That's how Paul understood himself. And then here's his authority. He says, I get my authority because uh, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. It wasn't that he, he named himself to be an apostle of Jesus or that he, he um, uh, called himself to be that or, or, or just fashioned himself that way. He said, no, as a servant of God, uh, I received this call as an apostle. And then when Paul uses the expression apostle, he's using it in a technical kind of way here. Uh, the word apostle just sort of generically means as one sent out, which he certainly was. But when he's talking about an apostle here, he's talking about an apostle like the other apostles who were individually called by Jesus and who were given the authority in the church to speak that which is true about God and ultimately some of them at least to write that was true and dependable and faithful about God. And Paul, you see, fit uh, as one of those men. Those men were called by God. Paul was called, I mean, called by Jesus, and Paul was called directly by Jesus as well. You might remember in Acts chapter 9, as, 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 as Luke describes Paul's conversion and calling, you remember that Paul was known as Saul and he was a persecutor of the church. And he had imprisoned and even signed the death certificate for believers, like Stephen, for instance. And so there was Paul. And so he was on the road, as you remember, to Damascus on the orders of Pharisees to go and continue that. And Jesus arrested him, really, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he revealed himself, Jesus did, to Paul, said, I'm Jesus uh, whom you uh, are persecuting. And then Jesus calls a man, Ananias, to go to Paul. And he says this to Ananias. He says, go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much you must suffer uh, for the sake of my name. And so, so Paul was called just like the other apostles were. And Paul also then on this experience had a first-hand revelation, a first-hand sighting, if you will, of the resurrected Jesus. In fact, Paul describes himself uh, like this in 1 Corinthians in chapter uh, 15 and verse 8. After describing what the gospel really is, in verse 7 he says, Then he, that is Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He he saw him. And so he had all the qualifications, if you will, of an apostle called directly by Jesus and had a a, a real revelation, a real sighting of the resurrected, the risen Christ. And he said, I'm an apostle. And what he means by that is that he had this authority to speak that which is true about Jesus, and he ought to be listened to. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul writes this, If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you as a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognize this, 
He is not recognized. So Paul knew his authority. He knew that he was a spokesperson for Jesus and the truth of God. That he had been authorized, that he had been called, and that he had the truth. In fact, in Galatians in chapter 1, as Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, uh, he writes this, verse 6. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we were an angel from heaven, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Paul knew that the gospel that he was preaching was true. And that if anyone contradicted it, if anyone said something different than what Paul was writing about the gospel, Paul had the authority as an apostle to say, let them be accursed. And then when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 13, he writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. I mean, it gives you goosebumps that a man could say that. But yet that's how he perceived himself, he understood himself, because he was an apostle of Jesus, sent out by Jesus. And then Peter writes, of Paul's writing in Second Peter in chapter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I so appreciate Peter saying that. Though you wonder if Peter wasn't saying, I, on the other hand, am incredibly clear. Um... But there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter was saying, I understand what Paul is writing is on par with, comparable to, consistent with, equal to the other writings, the other scriptures, the other writings that we hold as sacred and from God. So Paul understands all that to be true of himself. And again, I just by way of my own thinking, as I, as I sit and I think about these things, I wonder, do I understand myself to be a servant of God? A bond slave? Do I realize I'm not my own, but I've been bought with a price? Do I realize that I'm not to direct my own life, but I'm to look to God to direct my life? Do I realize I'm not to define my own life? I'm not to tell myself who I am and what I'm to be and do. But I'm to look to God and ask him those questions and then follow him. And then do I realize that the only authority I have, the only authority we have is the church, the only authority we have is individual Christians to speak that which is true is the authority that comes from the words that the apostles have given to us. That's why we often say, I often say, that our ministry rises and falls in the power of God's word, 
working by his spirit to change people's lives. Because that's all we have. I always add to that. And if that doesn't work, we're sunk. Because we have no plan B. It's not on my authority. It's on the authority of, of God's word given to us by those who are given the authority as the apostles of Jesus. And so this is our authority, this word. And so we come not with our own word, but with this word. We come not with our own ideas, but the ideas that come from this word. And, and that is the power of God, as we know it, unto salvation for all who believe. It's not simply information, but it comes as the power of God. So, Paul sees himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus. And here's, here's what that means for him. This is the purpose of all that. Notice, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for... So this is the reason why. This is the reason I understand myself as a servant of God and an apostle. This is why I am that for the purpose of, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with, some translations would be, uh, leads to godliness. Again, as I mentioned, that's a, a key point here. We'll see this coming through all the time as Paul writes, there are difficulties, uh, in the church, amongst the Christians that um, Titus is leading. They're not living godly lives. And so the question is, did they really get the truth? Uh, because the, this faith is to provide knowledge of the truth that will lead to uh, godliness. And so when we read for the sake of the faith of God's elect, no doubt Paul is meaning that in a couple of different ways. One is to bring them to faith. That, that I'm this, I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus to bring the word of God to people so that they'll hear it and believe. So to bring them to faith, but then also to nurture their faith, to grow them up in it. Paul never stopped with just that message of the gospel, but, but he, he, he fleshed out the implications of believing that gospel. It, it brings to us a knowledge of the truth. We can't believe in one in whom we do not know. And so he brought the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves to them as he declared and as he preached the truth so that people would come to faith and grow in that faith. Jesus, I mean, Paul uses this word elect for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And we know when Paul uses that word, on the one hand, he's, he's tying Again, he's, he's tying us into that which took place in the Old Covenant as well because God has his, had his elect in the Old Covenant. And now he's saying this is moving here. We're, we're in that same group, that same tradition of God's elect that began with the promises, at least with Abraham, with God chose out of, it seems, nowhere. I mean, why Abraham? Abraham was his name then. But when you happen upon Genesis chapter 12, it's a shock. That all of a sudden he takes this guy and he makes these eternal promises to, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to give you great descendants, and then the big one from your seed will all the families, nations of the earth be blessed. Why that guy? We don't know. He's just, that guy is God's electing choice of him. And so, so, so Paul says we're coming in that same tradition of this, of this sovereign electing God. And, 
And, and Jesus had used such an expression as well in John in chapter somewhere, 15, uh, verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Same word, family, elected you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You notice still, Jesus has the same connection between his electing grace of them so that it would lead to godliness, so that they would would bear fruit uh, by way of being dependent upon uh, his Father. We, we see this complements what Jesus said, in, in uh, uh, John has it in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and that I'll raise him up on the last day. So, so Jesus said, I'm here to gather up all that the Father has given to me, those elect. Paul himself speaks of this in other places. For instance, in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 31, to give us assurance, he writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, if, if it's God who's come and scooped you out, if it's God who's come and called you out, if it's God who's come and chosen you, if it's God who's come and elected you, then, then who could be against us if we really do belong to God from his vantage point from his call from his sovereign grace you see and then of course we know the classic passage in Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in Christ in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now notice then again though that this electing grace comes that yes, we should believe in him but also that we should be holy and blameless before him. So there's always a connection between this electing grace that brings to faith and godliness. And that's Paul's point here. Uh, you see, of course, this accords with Jesus' teaching. In uh, John chapter 10, we have it. He uh, sang this morning about shepherds. But in John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The reason they didn't believe him is because they didn't 
belonged to him. They weren't a sheep. And here's how he knows. Verse 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who, is, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The father, I and the father are one. So, so Jesus even, even lets them know that, that there is this work of God. And the big question that arises always here is if there are those who are elect and chosen by God, then why is Paul so worried about it? Why does he take the gospel to them? Won't they hear it somehow, some way? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? If, if God has chosen them, then, then, then why do we need to worry about evangelizing and all of that? And why did Paul need to worry about it? And why did he travel so much and give himself to it and, and all of that? And I, and I think, I, I think if you ask Paul that question, he'd scratch his head and he'd say, I never thought about it like that. It just never dawned on me to ask that question. And you go, why not, Paul? You're smart. He goes, well, first of all, I'm a servant of God and he commanded me to do it. So why would I say, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) And so I was commanded to do it. And then Paul knew. Paul knew as as I prayed during our time of offering this morning. That all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved from Romans 10. But how... Can they call upon him unless they hear about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone is sent? And then I didn't pray this, but it's in the text from Isaiah. And Paul quotes it in Romans 10. How beautiful, wonderful, glad are the feet of those who bring the good news. And Paul said, that's that's me. I get to do that. And so my feet are just, just wonderful. Right? I travel and I bring this. It cost me my life, but I bring it to them, this good news. Because it always, faith comes by hearing. He said, in hearing by the word of Christ. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Well, that isn't just simply something bubbling up from within. Oh, I heard the voice of Jesus today. Usually it's the pizza you ate last night. Right? Could be... But, but, but there's, it's coming from the outside. It's coming from a voice voice, a human voice that's declaring the truth about God to people. And it's that voice, which is the gospel, the word of God, that then resonates within as God illumines it to us, gives light to it. So we hear it and believe in only that because he gives us new life. In order to do so. What Jesus referred as being born anew. Being born from the spirit. Being born from above. It's, it's that you see. That, that is at work. And so Paul says. So that's my life. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth. Which accords with godliness. You see this knowledge of the truth. That Paul brought to them. Accords with. Was consistent with. Leads to godliness. These these, these promises of God, this word of God leads to godliness. Very quickly, turn to First Peter in chapter 1. Almost done. I know, Kelly gave you a short week. He's repented. He'll never do it again the next time he comes. First Peter chapter 1. 
I'm sorry, I don't want that. I want Second Peter chapter 1. There you go. Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So you catch the drift that God's power is given to us and he gives to us power that pertain to life and godliness. And this power that leads and pertains to life and godliness comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now notice that little expression, that you become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become God. It means that his spirit comes to live within us and we're united to God. This is what Jeremiah meant by the wonderful promise and I think one of the promises that, that Peter's referring to. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that God will write his law upon our hearts that he'll put it in our minds. A, 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 a transformation, a whole different inclination of heart, a different inclination of mind rather than being against the law of God but he puts it in us. We go, yes, this is true, this is real, this is life. And the same promise that Ezekiel made when Ezekiel made the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36 that he would take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and put his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways. You see, that the powerful promises. And so when we come to faith in Jesus and we come to a knowledge of that truth, of what faith in Jesus means, it means a changed heart. It means a changed inclination of life. It means what Jesus meant when he talked about being born from above, being born anew. Something has really happened that we've been set free from the the power and the penalty of sin, that that's really true. Then we grab a hold of that truth, realizing that it's the lead, if you will, to godliness. Because we've escaped the penalty and power of sin in the world. And now we can live unto God. And, And that's... Paul's point is he writes to Titus. Notice in chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you have an NIV, at least one of the versions of the NIV over the years, says the grace of God has appeared uh, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And, And that's Paul's point here. Yes, he exists as a servant of God and apostle of Jesus for the faith of the elect. So he spreads the gospel, bringing the elect to faith. They hear the voice of Jesus and follow him. 
It's the means through which it happens. But then he says, remember that what that has brought is that it's enabled you, as Peter would put it, to share in the divine nature that is to say, to give you new life, a new inclination of heart. And so he says, now live a godly life. Now the danger, of course, is that we become moralistic. That is, we just skip all of that and say, well, I just need to be a good person. No, 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 no. To live a godly life in this way means to to realize my own sin and realize I'm ungodly and I can't. But to realize that Jesus died for me so that my sins would be forgiven and I'd be clothed in his righteousness and justified and accepted by God as his own and that he would put his spirit within me and by his word and spirit would work over time in my own life to cause me to follow in his ways. And so what that means for us is this, is this, this, this life of hearing this truth and growing in the knowledge of God and realizing our own sin and weakness and confessing and repenting and praying that he would give us his spirit to enable us to walk in his ways. I mean, that's, isn't that how you breathe as a Christian? Isn't that how you live as a believer? To realize truth, to realize sin, to realize the gift and power and grace of God to help us and to pray to learn to walk in his ways. That's, that's, the, that's the, the constant rhythm of our lives. Now, Titus has been called to finish amongst those Christians in Crete what had been started. What we'll see is a movement of faith and knowledge 